Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Happy spring break or happy March break or whatever today represents for you. Happy whatever day. Um, I want to begin this week with a big thank you. Last week, uh, last Monday evening, the podcast crossed the 10,000 download threshold. And I don't really know where that fits into the grand scheme of things. I know that's not Joe Rogan numbers. Um, but I thought 10,000 was a cool number, and uh, I'm very much appreciative of that. At the time of this recording, we're now at 10,309 downloads. So again, a big, big thank you to you. Big thanks to you, the listeners, and obviously a big thanks to the amazing guests we've had on so far. Uh, if there's one thing I'm going to brag about as far as the podcast is concerned is I think, pound for pound, that we've had a lineup of guests uh, that is about as good as it gets in education. So I'm really proud of that. Um, you know, not bad. Six months, 10,000 downloads. So I'm thinking, let's let's get to 20,000 in the next five months or less. Um, certainly that might be tough with summer coming up, but hey, you never know. And speaking of summer, at the end of today's podcast, I'm going to let you in on the plans for the podcast for the summer, for June, July, and August. And I'm going to actually ask you for some input as what you'd like to uh, to see happen with the podcast over the summer. So stay tuned for that at the end of the podcast, and I'll, I'll explain more about what my thoughts are as far as the summer is concerned. Uh, of course, as I always say, thanks for listening again this week, and a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, listening and subscribing to the podcast. It certainly means a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. And as always, if you like what you hear and you feel up to spreading the word, uh, you know, maybe on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would certainly appreciate that too. Um, I'm going to need your help if we're going to get to 20,000 in the next uh, five months. So um, please feel free to spread the word if you see fit. Uh, really excited for today's guest. I have Peter DeWitt joining me for the interview. Peter and I focus on one of his latest books called Instructional Leadership. So that is exactly what we talk about. And in Assessment Corner this week, my focus is on leading change in assessment and grading. And this is going to be part one of two parts. Uh, so we'll finish that up next week. But today in Assessment Corner, it's leading change in assessment and grading. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Peter DeWitt is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a question, and that is, why can't we be happy for other people? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, not me, Tom. Not me. I, I love it when other people succeed. I'm, I'm always happy for them. Are you? Well, look, yes, you could be happy for your friends who don't work in your field, right? You can be happy for your friend who got promoted to bank manager. You could be happy for your sister who had her first novel published, or maybe your neighbor whose restaurant is blowing up because they caught a break on social media. You can be happy for them. That's easy. But here's the test. Are you happy for your friend who's at the same place in their career who just bought their first home while you're still trying to scrape together the down payment? Are you happy for your colleague who always seems to go on these fabulous vacations every spring break or summer break and you don't seem to have that opportunity? Are you happy for your colleague who just got a special mention at the staff meeting from the principal? Are you happy for the other assistant principal that you work with who was just hired to be the new principal at a school in your district across town? Are you happy for anyone in your industry? And in our case, of course, education. Are you happy when they get attention, they publish a book, or they go viral? Are you happy for them? If they get a mention on social media, 
Are you happy for them? Or do you instinctively jump in and think, what about me? Pay attention to me. That's the test, isn't it? Now, I remember a clip from psychologist Jordan Peterson about friendship from a number of years ago. And I'm not always the biggest fan of Jordan Peterson. Let's get that right. But in the case of his talk about friendship, I actually thought he was onto something. And here's what he said. He said, quote, the way you can tell someone is your friend is first, you can tell them bad news and they'll listen. They won't tell you why you're stupid or why that bad thing happened and how something worse happened to them and derail that whole conversation. You can actually tell them bad news and they'll listen. The second thing he said, and he said this is the weirder thing, is that you can tell them good news and they'll help you celebrate. He said that's a really good way of deciding who you should have around you, end quote. We've all been there. I know I've been on both sides of this ledger, and you have too. Yes, you have. It's normal. Feeling envious or indifferent or even having real dislike for other successes is a normal human emotion. But that doesn't make it okay, does it? The sort of, uh, oh, that's just how people are, Tom. Well, maybe that's true, but we don't have to like it and tolerate it, do we? The one I particularly love, and I'm sure you can sense my sarcasm, this one has definitely reared its head in my life once or twice, is when people want you to be happy for them when something awesome happens to them. Like when that happens, then, in, then they're all, you know, the faux humility, the aw shucks, the who start coming out. But as soon as it turns around, something fantastic happens to you, then it's radio silence. That's happened to me more than once. It's so blatant. It's so obvious. And well, look, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not naming names here on this, on this podcast. And, you know, probably wouldn't matter because that said, they're probably not listening to the podcast because the podcast represents something positive in my life and they wouldn't support that, right? So who cares? And we're not going to do that. So I, I did a little digging over this past week. Now, I'm not going to suggest I took a deep dive into the research, but I did a little digging, a little reading this week, and asked the question, why is it so tough for us to be happy for other people? So what I'm going to try to do is synthesize some of the big ideas and then some of the strategies that many of the psychologists suggested in their work that can help us kind of overcome these feelings. It, it turns out that so many of the psychologists actually have a very consistent message. The first one is that while it's normal to feel these emotions on some level, it's also often a sign of an unresolved issue for ourselves. And two, the other constant message was that people who feel this way are, ones who, are people who often look at life through the lens of a zero-sum game. They think life is, you know, a pie, if you will. And you start to realize, as you think about it, and I think we all know this, but it's probably good to be reminded that when those feelings happen, when we start to feel that way, it's actually more about us than it is about them, isn't it? Let's start with the first one. Now, low self-esteem tends to make it more likely that you're going to notice what others have or have done, or you're going to notice what you don't have or what you haven't done. That can be internal, right? So you put on a smile, you go through the motions, you congratulate them, but inside it's killing you. Sometimes it emerges as outright hostility. 
where your envy just overwhelms you and you start acting in ways that are unbecoming or, or worse. I once heard the expression, you'll never get criticized by people doing better than you, which I thought was an interesting perspective. And as I look back on my career, I think that's pretty much true. When you notice someone else's success and it produces a negative reaction, that's usually us feeling inadequate or we feel more than adequate and we feel as if the world is slanted against us. We say things like, I work harder than she does or I've been teaching longer than he has. What makes him so special? Or we say, you know, she doesn't deserve it, right? The D word is huge in these instances, right? She doesn't deserve it. How come no one notices all the time and effort I put into it? Now, the second one, the zero-sum game. That comes from the idea, as I said earlier, that life is a pie, that your success is going to somehow diminish my opportunity to succeed, which is a completely false premise. Like, maybe in a moment where you're both competing for the same job. I get that acutely, sure. But, But that's just, again, in the big picture, that's one of many jobs. You know, that whole premise that that life is a pie, it it definitely doesn't feel false when your life is driven by ego because our egos need separation and distinction. Our egos are fueled by how different we are, how unique we are, how our circumstances are much worse, or how you could never understand my plight. Egos, our egos thrive on distinction and separation. We all have to work on this all of us, every single one of us, and put me at the top of the list, we all have to work on this. But there's another expression I heard years ago that I try to practice, I try to remember, and I try to keep at the front of my mind to keep me grounded when these feelings start to percolate. And I think that's the point. These feelings are normal, and when they start to percolate, it's not that there's something wrong, but we have to recognize through a level of awareness that we have to do something to try to to change the way we're thinking. And the expression was this, there's enough sunshine out there for all of us. And I know that sounds a bit corny, but I really do think that's a a really important perspective to bring to the table. So as I read about how to combat these feelings, a few common assertions emerged and strategies emerged from the different articles. And the first one was gratitude. Now, listeners, you might remember in episode 13, I talked about the attitude of gratitude. Now, the advice throughout was that when you focus on what you're grateful for, it puts you in a completely different emotional frame of mind. You can only ever think one thought at a time. So if your dominant thoughts are gratitude, your dominant emotion is going to be positive. It's pretty hard to feel grateful and envious at the same time. Number two, use others' success as an inspiration for what's possible for you. Now, we often want to believe that somehow we've been overlooked or undermined or given a raw deal. And sometimes that does happen. Okay, I'm not, I'm not denying that. But most of the time, that isn't true. Imagine the level of ego necessary to believe that the reason you didn't achieve something or get promoted, etc., is because everyone is obsessed with keeping you down. That is some kind of self-absorption. If you see yourself as being on par with the person who was successful, or even secretly think you're better, then use it to confirm 
that your success is just within reach, that their success is possible for you, that that's attainable, right? Use it to inspire you to understand what's possible in your career, in your life, all of that. Number three, force yourself to do things that feel counterintuitive. In other words, think about how you would want others to act if that success happened to you. We have to give what we want, right? So it might feel intuitive to be envious, but force yourself to be happy for them because that's what you would want from other people. So pretend the other person is you. How would you want people to act if something great happened to you? And then flip it and do that for them. Number four, ask your friends some questions or your colleagues some questions about how they were successful. No, there may be a lot more to their success than meets the eye. You might not know everything. You might not know everything they did. So there's maybe ways that you can use the details of their successes to inspire you. Maybe they did go the extra mile. Maybe they did join a committee that you weren't aware of. Maybe they did, you know, take some extra training. Maybe they invested in Apple 15 years ago, and that's why they can afford that beach house in Mexico. There may be more to it than meets the eye. So asking those questions, finding out how they were successful. Listen, anyone who's successful loves talking about how they were successful. So you're not going to hit many roadblocks here. So ask them some questions and use those details to help inspire you. And the last one, and this one was interesting. This came up in more than one article. Figure out how to own some of their success. Now, they weren't saying that you're going to go up to them and say, hey, if it wasn't for me, you, would, you couldn't have done this or it was impossible. It's, you're never going to say that, okay? Just congratulate them, smile, be happy for them and all of that. But this is a mental trick. So if you flip it for a moment, when we're successful, we're always successful through some form of help right? No one is successful 100% on their own. We either get some small, medium, or large assistance along the way. No one truly succeeds 100% in their own right, okay? We don't like to admit that, especially if we're ego-driven, right? Our, our, our egos want us to be different and, and unique, but we know it's true, okay? So we flip it back. Think about how you contributed to the other person's success. Were you a sounding board? Was your relationship what got them through, you know, tough moments? Did you cover for them? Did you help them out? Again, this is a mental exercise. It's not something you're going to say to them. But finding an authentic way that you contributed could be an interesting psychological exercise that helps you mentally own a tiny piece of their success. What was your role in their success story? Well, that's tough. I, I know that's tough. And, uh, and again, it's not something you would say out loud, but, you, but it's something that you can do as a mental trick. It's a really tough situation. It's hard to be happy for other people when they really have, you know, some, some great success. When others succeed, it's, it's, it's a primal reaction um, to ask the question, what does this mean for me? Or what does this say about me and all of my inadequacies, et cetera? Um, it's just instinctive to make it about us. I'm not saying you need to be a sucker either, right? There's the other side of this. There are people out there who talk shit about you behind your back. It's happened to me. And so there, it is challenging to be happy for them when, when success happens to them because you know that they haven't exactly been your biggest supporter uh, in your absence. 
we're only human. And when you hear about overt hostility, especially when it comes to third party, um, it can be tough to smile and say, you know, good for you. When you know that person has been talking about you behind your back. So, so I get that. It's, it's tough. It can be tough in those situations. But that's still on them. It really comes down to this question, and I know this is going to sound super simple, but I think it's an important question. What kind of person do you want to be? We find out a lot about ourselves when others succeed. And the closer they are to us, the greater the lesson. That's for sure. I don't have all the answers. But what I do know is I've been trying to keep this in the front of my mind. And I'm going to continue to try to shine the light on others in the best ways possible. I I want to continue to get better at that. I know I can get better at that. So I want to continue to try to do that. So one thing I really love about doing this podcast is the opportunity to give others a platform to showcase their work and showcase what they've accomplished. Now, you know the saying, with age comes wisdom. And of course, we all hope that's true. We have to practice being authentically happy for others, even if we have to force it at first, because it's only through practice that the habit of truly being happy for others will then become your default disposition. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Peter DeWitt. Peter is an author, a keynote speaker, and a workshop facilitator. He is a school leadership expert whose work has been adopted at both the state level and at the university level. He also works with numerous school districts, uh, school boards, regional networks, ministries of education, not just in North America, but quite literally around the world. Peter also writes the Finding Common Ground column for Education Week. He has co-created the Education Week's uh, A Seat at the Table, where he moderates conversations with experts around a variety of topics. He is the author of eight books. You kind of get the picture here. Peter is an educational force. Uh, Today, our focus is going to be on one of those books, Instructional Leadership, uh, Creating Practice Out of Theory. We're going to focus on that book and about instructional leadership. If you're an educational leader or an aspiring leader, I would be shocked if you haven't heard of Peter DeWitt or become intimately familiar with his work. But if you haven't, that is about to change. So Peter, welcome to the Tom Shimmer podcast. Tom, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Peter. You know, it's great to have you here. I'm a big fan of your work and uh, an admirer, not just of your work, but how you go about the work. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, And we're going to focus on the role of the principal. We're going to sort of zero in on the role of the the leader in the school. And uh, so let's jump right into it. Uh, Start with the overarching big idea. You, You state that in your research, you have found that Many principals believe that they are instructional leaders. Um, They see themselves as instructional leaders, but a lot of teachers don't share that view. That's sort of been your finding. So I'm wondering if that's because principals don't really understand what it means to be an instructional leader. Does that that mean teachers don't really understand what instructional leadership is? Is is it a little bit of both? So what is instructional leadership and why do you think that gap exists between the teachers and administrators' perceptions? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. It, it's something that I've been looking at for a while because of based on questions that I get asked when I'm running workshops. And, you know, I first wrote about instructional leadership in a book called Collaborative Leadership, Six Influences that Matter Most. It was based on John Hattie's research and instructional leadership was one of those influences. So over the years, I've really taken a, a look at it and I've done research. I've read, I mean, instructional leadership has been 
one of the most researched forms of school leadership over the past 50 years. Edmonds looked at it back in the 1970s. And one of the things that makes it so complicated is that, yes, it's all of what you said. It's that um, school building leaders don't necessarily know what constitutes instructional leadership, or they feel like they're jumping into instructional leadership practices, but maybe those practices are flawed, like learning walks. I've always had a love-hate relationship with learning walks and walkthroughs yeah. because I feel like they're done to teachers, not done with them. I think part of what complicates it is the relationship that administrators, and notice how I say administrators, not leaders, administrators right. have had with teachers where I have honestly worked with teachers and leaders where the teachers have said, like, leaders aren't supposed to come into our classrooms. Administrators aren't supposed to come into our classrooms unless they're asked to come in. And that was just not the philosophy I had when I was a school principal. Yeah. And the, the, the discrepancy piece always takes place, whether you're doing surveys of students and teachers on the same topic or teachers and principals on the same topic, you're always going to have a discrepancy between what um, leaders might believe, what teachers might believe, and, you know, all of that. And one of the things that I found is that school leaders really felt very confident when it came to instructional leadership. But when I surveyed teachers, teachers didn't feel so confident. And there are a lot of reasons why that might happen, but one that I talk about in workshops and webinars and whatever is the idea of proximity. Like mm -hmm. if I have a good relationship with you and you, maybe you teach a subject that I used to teach and I go into your classroom quite a bit because we have a good relationship. I feel very comfortable. Um, I feel confident to be able to walk in and see what you're teaching because I, I had taught the same content. Mm -hmm. But say, you know, somebody down the hall from you uh, teaches with their door closed and they teach content that I didn't teach and I don't feel as confident. And I'm more likely to bypass the classroom because they keep the door closed. Well, if the two of you fill out the same survey asking whether Peter, uh, you know, whether you feel very confident that Peter's an instructional leader, you, Tom, are probably going to say, yeah, I'm very confident. I see Peter all the time. We talk about learning, whatever. But that teacher down the hallway might not feel the same way because they might say, Peter, I've never seen him. Like he's never in my classroom. So that's why I always go back to, and I never want to like reinvent the wheel. Um, I really want to look at what structures do we have in place? Because everybody talks about how time is a factor and how it's stress is a factor and all that stuff. So let's look at the structures you already have in place. And that's where faculty meetings are probably one of the places where we have the greatest proximity to all of our staff. And when I was a school principal, I used to flip my faculty meetings. We would focus mm -hmm. on learning. I would find an article or a blog a few days ahead of time. And then we would get together to talk about it and all that stuff and develop a common language, common understanding. I think that all of those, those are the, that, that point of clarity about instructional leadership is what's not present. And I think that um, it's even more complicated because principals feel the pressure to be instructional leaders because even though it's been around for 50 years, there's been a major push over the past 20. Um, but at the same time, I don't know if they always have a deep understanding of what that's supposed to look like or how often it's supposed to take place within their schools. And it also means that they have to develop relationships with their teachers where teachers actually not only want them in the classroom, but actually value 
the dialogue that they engage in together around the learning that's taking place in that classroom. Right. You can see that if if we all have a different working definition of what instructional leadership means, then that that gap may just be a perception or an understanding about what what are we talking about here for sure. Um, yeah, no, I think all of us, well, I should say all of us, but but I know that when I first moved into administration, I had this idea of wanting to be an instructional leader. You know, my master's degree was in curriculum and instruction. It wasn't in educational administration. I really wanted to be that instructional leader. I think a lot of us have that that um, desire, uh, but but the lack of clarity around what it actually means to be that instructional leader, which is which is why you're here, Peter. Which is why we're going to explore this topic as we as we go yeah, further. I can, I can give you a really great example. I was sure. working with a very strong group of school administrators in a school district in Massachusetts. And um, I've worked with them before. They're very vocal. And I love that about them. Like I love knowing I'm with a group that if they don't agree with me, they're going to let me know. I love yeah. the, the engagement that way. But mm -hmm. so we had gone through and I had them fill out. Um, it was a, you know, it was, it was one of the online engagement tools that we use when we're running a presentation. And yeah. one of the questions was, I feel confident I'm an, I'm an instructional leader. And there was, you know, very confident, confident, somewhat confident, not confident at all. 100% of them said they felt very confident. So when we got to a place where we talked about um, a focus for learning within classrooms, and I talk a lot about um, Bloom's revised taxonomy by Anderson, where we talk yeah. about conceptual, procedural, factual, and metacognitive. Yeah. Um, one of the things that came out is that they rank them in order. They see factual way the most, you know, they see procedural second, conceptual is third, but they see less of it. And then metacognitive, they see very little. And, and I even talk about maybe it's not that it's not going on in the classroom. It's just that you don't know to look for it. But when I said, so why is it you see factual all the time? And it was high school. Yeah. Why do you see factual all the time um, in the classroom? And I was kind of amazed because some of the school leaders were like, ah, teachers find it easier. Ah, they like their worksheets. And they were yelling out those things. And I remember it dawned on me because I looked at them and I said, just this morning you filled out this morning that you felt very confident that you were instructional leaders. If you're such a great instructional leader, why do you still see this happening in the classroom? And why is it that you're not addressing those very behaviors that you just talked about with me? Why are you not addressing those with, with your faculty? And like, you can see, you can, I honestly thought I was going to get kicked out. Like I thought they were going to throw something at me because they are the group to do that. Um, but you can see it just like went dead silent. And I'm just sitting there going, oh God, why didn't I think before I spoke? Um, and they agreed. They were like, you're absolutely right. And it was just such, for me, it was one of those profound moments. And you've had these two running yeah. workshops. It was a profound moment where it was, we all had an aha moment at the same time. And I think that speaks to the complications around instructional leadership. You can feel very confident. And yet, when you ask the simple question about what's going on in the classroom, you don't feel like you have any, like, any impact right. on that whatsoever. And that, yeah. that's just strange to me. It's supposed to go hand in hand. Yeah, I, lo I love those breakthrough moments. They, they, are, they are moments where you're like, should I have said that? And there's a little bit of awkward silence and everybody kind of goes, yeah, yeah, actually, you're kind of right. And, uh, I mean, every once in a while, <laughs> every once in a while it goes sideways, but uh, but not not as often as one might anticipate, that's for sure. Uh, listeners, I, like honestly, I cannot 
speak highly enough about this book. There are so many great features in the book. One thing that caught my attention right away in, in the model was you made a conscious decision to write a separate chapter about implementation. And you know, a lot of books would follow the formula where here's the idea and now here's a section at the end about here's how you go about it. Here's the implementation side. But you decided rather than focus on implementation within each chapter, you wrote an entire chapter on implementation itself. So my question is why? Why, why did you separate implementation? What, what led to that decision? And, and why do you think paying attention to implementation is so critical that it deserved its own chapter? Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> I would love to tell you it was my idea, but it wasn't. Um, I was actually going to follow suit and just put implementation as part of the, the other pieces. And I have one of the pieces that worried me too is that I wrote collaborative leadership, six influences that matter most. And then all of a sudden with instructional leadership, I find myself with six pieces and like, no, I can't have instructional leadership, six more pieces. You know? That's like, right. <laughs> like, but so I really wanted that five. But um, so I have a couple of very good friends and, you know, confidants or whatever you want to call them. But Stephen Cox runs an organization called Osiris in the UK, and I do a, a lot of work with them. And then John Hattie, who mm -hmm. most people would know as far as a researcher, John's been a mentor and very good friend of mine for, the, for over like seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was talking about the premise of the book with them, uh, Stephen had suggested, and I think I wrote about this in the book, Stephen had suggested that I... I take out and separate an implementation and just make it its own chapter. And John agreed. And that's where John sort of introduced me, or I should say reintroduced me to the program logic model. Um, yeah. You know, program logic models have been around for a very long time, but they can be very complicated. And I wanted to create one that was simple that John ended up using. So that was a good sign. But mm -hmm. um, it was really because of Stephen and John that I separated it out. And it really was a, it was good feedback on their part because I was mm -hmm. glad that I did it because, you know, we all know Michael Fullen's work on implementation dips and yeah. all those kind of things. And, and in the middle of writing this book, just like you, you know, I think people need to understand that while we are writing a book, it's not that we have this great office, you know, that we're working from and we're working in solitude and all that stuff. You and I are mm -hmm. mostly like writing on planes and writing right. in hotel rooms. And, that's right. And that's the cool part is that the people we work with, the audiences, the participants we work with really shape what we're writing. And at that same time, I happen to be working with a group in California that were, they had a lot of initiatives, but they were not implementing well. And so it's funny how and, and I know you've experienced this too, where you're talking about an idea, you're talking with your confidants or your very close colleagues about your idea that you're writing about, and then suddenly you're in this workshop where all of these things sort of come together, and you see you have clarity as far as, ah, that's what we need to be able to do. And that's why I also realized that not only did they give me good advice, but it was absolutely necessary that I talk about implementation first. And, you know, since writing the book, I've run a lot of workshops and a lot of coaching, you know, a lot of strategic planning with places and that program logic model and the whole idea of implementation first has come in very, very handy. Yeah. Uh, and it has helped cement, you know, or ground the work that people are trying to do. And that's the thing that I think people also need to understand is that anything I write comes out of 
a level of respect. It's non-judgmental. And right. I know that that sounds really easy to say, but I go in with a non-judgmental attitude. I'm going in saying, what can I learn? What's, where, where do I fit into all of this? And when I was writing about the program logic model and implementation, I really did it from a standpoint of there are initiatives that are really, really important. And yet they fall through the cracks because we don't always take the time or we don't find the time to give them the, our effort that they need and doing a program logic model and talking about implementation, whether we're talking about in a classroom, in a school, in a district division, whatever, um, it's really important that we talk about that first because I'm really yeah. tired of hearing people say, building the plane while flying. Yeah. You know, I feel like we need to, we need to get away from that. No, I, I couldn't agree more. So for listeners, uh, Peter, without giving away the plot of, of the book, just can you highlight for us, what do you mean when you say program logic model? What, what, is, what are the big ideas that listeners need to think yeah, about? Yeah, so, so, so a program logic model tends to be very complicated. Like it gives you a starting point, and then you go through all these you know, different pieces that, um, and then, it, you know, then you get to the end result. And I really wanted to, I made mine, um, really five areas that we need to talk about. And this is not some like how to manual where it's five easy steps and you're going to hit it. <laughs> you know, it, it starts off with understanding your current reality. Like, where are you that you want to grow in? Where do you want to make an improvement? Right. And then the second, the second space, the second column um, is where we're looking at um, inputs. And when I'm talking about inputs, I'm talking about, um, you know, different elements, resources that we need, like sharing best practices, evidence-based articles, uh, research-based articles, models of successful practice, but also time, putting down the time factor because we know that that's a big issue. Let's talk about the resources we need, which is the input, before we jump into the activities and activities are next. Mm -hmm. And I use the word activities because quite honestly, unless you're going to do them correctly, they're just activities. So learning walks and walkthroughs, faculty meetings, PLCs, those are activities. You want them to have impact, but they don't often have the impact that they need um, because they're just something you do to tick off the list and not necessarily do them with, with depth. The next, the next column, the fourth column is actually called outputs. And I specifically use the wording outputs because if you're going to take those activities and do something with, in depth with them, then you need to have sort of a timestamp. You need to be able to say like, I'm going to start doing this in October or November. And the reason why I did that is because we often will talk about the activities we're going to engage in like a diet working out, losing weight, and yet months go by and we haven't started any of it. So instead of just talking about the activities we need to do, outputs are where we also hold ourselves accountable to say when we're going to start them. And you can obviously go a lot deeper into like putting out how often and when and all that stuff. And then the, la the last column, the fifth column is actually impact. Um, how did teachers and students benefit from this? And I I specifically use the words benefit because I was a school principal and I felt like, especially in New York state where I live, we had so much accountability, so many mandates. And I remember that my teachers had said, like, we feel like our voices don't matter. 
And I was lucky I had the blog, I was speaking out for them. So right. it was something we felt together. We felt like we were just like, we just didn't have a voice. And I wanted to find ways to have a voice. And mm -hmm. so when we talk about impact, we have to talk about how are teachers and students going to benefit from this? And when I've done this, one of the first times I did a program logic model with a group, I knew that they had a lot of initiatives, but they didn't have a lot of impact, but they needed to see it. And when we went through, they named, I think they had something like 12 or 13 initiatives that they were trying to do at the same time. High poverty school district, which is what happens to high poverty school districts. People are like, well, you need this, you need that, you need this. Here's the money. You can go after it. And um, when we got to the impact part, the person, one of the directors that I was working with, she looked at me and she said, um, wow, we do, we have a lot of activities, but we don't have impact. And I said, yeah, you're activity rich and impact poor. And I ended up writing a blog. I flew away from there and I actually wrote a blog that I, that I posted about that situation. Mm -hmm. So it's really about getting districts and whoever's filling out the program logic model to understand that activities are really important, but impact is even more important. And that's one issue. That's one thing that can help them. For sure. You know, it, it's so true that sometimes until you see it on paper, until you actually see how many initiatives you have, or, or on a screen or on a chart paper or something, until you see, uh, and then you look at the impact that some of them are not having, or some of them are having, it really helps you sort out your priorities. Because I, you know, I, I don't know anyone who's not suffering from initiative fatigue, right? Oh, Just yeah, struggling yeah. to figure out how to prioritize. And I think the model is, is a great way to do that. Um, another, another part of your model that uh, really resonated with me was the, 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 and I know listeners, you're going to, you're going to hear this and you're going to say, well, yeah, thanks. You know, but, but it was, it was the focus on learning because yeah. it's easy. It's really easy for, for educators to be dismissive or cynical of, of, Hey, focus on learning. It's like, you know, thanks, Peter, you know, focus on learning. Gee, I never thought of that. We only work in schools, you know, um, but I'm, but I'm with you on this because uh, there's, it's, there is much more to focus on when it comes to learning than, than meets the eye. And I think that this is something that we can be flipping about, but I think it's a really important point you make. So what does a focus on learning really mean for instructional leaders? Yeah, I, I'm just, I think I write from a place of curiosity and I was doing a lot of learning walks with school principals. And when I always ask them, like, what do you look for when you go into a classroom? And not all of them, actually most of them, didn't necessarily have a good sense of what they were looking for. Um, I remember once there was a principal that I worked with who said they were looking for student engagement. And I said, so what does student engagement mean? And it basically meant time on task. Mm -hmm. I was like, we need to move away from that. So I started to do a lot of research around what do we look for when we go into the classroom? Because I come from the elementary world. I was an elementary school teacher for 11 years. And I worked for a principal that used to like come into our classrooms and say, oh, there's an empty spot. I need, you know, you to put up a drawing up there and all that stuff. And I'm not saying hanging up student work wasn't important. I certainly loved hanging up student work. But it, it became this case of like the Pinterest classroom. Right. Are we walking in to look at the Pinterest classroom? And that along with there's, there's certain research that has always impacted me when I've read it. Like I've looked back and I know you feel about this way too, where you sit there, you read and you're just going, ah, oh, wow, that, that is unbelievable. 
And for me, um, one of the pieces of research is Rob Coe out of the UK. And Rob Coe actually found that it's something like, and people are going to have to check me out. I'm, I'm believing I'm saying this right. Around 80% of the time students are in our classrooms, they're sitting cooperatively. But about 75% of that time that they're sitting cooperatively, they're actually doing individual work. So we're really good at cooperative seating, not necessarily cooperative learning. I've been asked really great questions. Like I've had people say, is that a problem? Like, no, no, because I was a first grade teacher for seven out of 11 years. Like there were times we had center-based learning, but the kids were supposed to be working independently, but I knew they were supposed to be working independently. I didn't fool myself to say they're working cooperatively. Right. But if we're going to call it cooperative learning, then let's let's do that. And I remember as a school principal, I mean, I went into every classroom every morning, say good morning. I went back in during the day. And I remember going into some places and I would see kids working cooperatively. And I'd be like, yes. And then I had, I was lucky enough to have a doctoral mentor who would say, Are you going deep enough? And I turned around and I would go back into the classroom and I would see that the kids were doing individual work. So with all of that, I started thinking, what is a focus on learning supposed to be? And the easy answer would have been depth of knowledge. Like people, I remember somebody, I was, I was working with a group in New Jersey and somebody was very angry with me, um, but they wanted to know why I didn't do DOK. And honestly, I don't think I had a good answer at that time, but DO, the reason why I didn't choose DOK and I chose Bloom's revised taxonomy instead is because I wanted something very tangible that we could start with. I felt like Bloom's revised taxonomy, Anderson's Bloom's revised of knowledge dimensions was a tangible way and it was a gateway into going into something like depths of knowledge. Because the reality is, I think there are a lot of leaders who are very confident when it comes to management, but not as confident when it comes to instructional leadership. Mm-hmm. And until they can't get to DOK if they don't understand like about factual, procedural, conceptual, and metacognitive learning. And do we actually focus on that when we're doing learning walks? Do we talk about that at our faculty meetings? We know we've got factual down because one of the worst answers I always hear, but it's a reality is it's on the test. Yeah. But when we, and we know procedural is something really important, especially when we're talking about math and, you know, when I taught kids how to read, so procedure are really important. But what about the conceptual? I'm a conceptual, I, I feel like out of all the ways to learn, conceptual is something I am good at. And I feel like, what about the conceptual piece where we can understand where we learn here can be moved mm-hmm. into another content area? And then a metacognitive piece as a former struggling learner who barely graduated from high school, I didn't know how I learned. And it wasn't until I got to my third community college um, and went into the Learning Assistance Center when I was 21 years old, that I started to learn how I best learn. And that's why I feel so strongly about metacognitive because it's about how can we help kids understand how they themselves learn? And that's why I think those knowledge dimensions that focus on learning is so important. And then you can do things like DOK. And yeah. the, the whole idea of focus on learning, there was one more addition to that. And it's, I remember Hattie would always say, we're really good. He wrote, a, he wrote a brilliant paper called The Politics of Distraction. And it was the first paper he ever asked me to edit, which is 
highly intimidating situation when John Hattie asked you to edit his papers. I can imagine. But he, uh, but he asked me to edit it. And I remember I was on a plane. I was actually flying to the UK to meet with him. So the pressure was on. Yeah. And I just, I loved the paper. It was just something that I thought was brilliant. And what he said is that we often talk about adult issues. We don't talk enough about learning. And he was right. absolutely right. I feel like we spend a lot of time talking about adult issues and how we get along and all that stuff. And we don't spend enough time at faculty meetings and PLCs and all of those kind of structural places, school leadership team meetings, talking about learning. And that's what we should be doing. Right. Is that, is that where that discrepancy we talked about off the top, where there might be in some cases, I'm not saying this happens in every case, but is it, is it possible that the distinction between, you know, teachers seeing well, you, you're not an instructional leader because you're not an expert in my content area. Whereas we want principals, we want school leaders, we want them to focus on the principles of learning, right? We want them yeah. to focus on instruction and learning, not necessarily to be the content expert. Do you see that discrepancy as being part of the reason why uh, that perception gap exists between teachers and, and principals? Yeah, it's certainly one of the criticisms, too. I remember running into somebody, I was speaking at a research conference, and uh, afterwards, somebody said, when you talk about instructional leadership, you don't talk about the fact that principals should be content experts. And I said, no, I don't. And they said, well, in our school district, we expect our principals to be content experts in every grade level that they lead. And I said, then you're setting your principals up for failure. Because with all due respect, there's just, especially at the secondary level, but even as an elementary principal, K-5, you, you're not going to know all the standards of all the content and standards change. And right. like we, I, I just feel like we have to find a happy medium. And that's probably, and that's where the focus for learning came from as well. There has to be a happy medium where all of this is concerned. And I think the, the thing that that's hard is that, you know, unless we're having these discussions um, at our faculty meetings to talk about what instructional leadership could look like. And, and in the book, I expanded the, the vision of instructional leadership because we're talking about building leaders, but I want to be clear that I think that teacher leaders, instructional coaches, department chairs, like they need to practice instructional leadership because very often those positions are the ones where they don't have an administration background. And now we put them in this leadership position and they don't know what to do necessarily all the time when a colleague pushes back on them, a colleague they teach next to. So instructional leadership is about not just one person either. It's about how we're all going to benefit because, because of the fact that a principal might not have content expertise. You need instructional leadership among your, your colleagues that you're working with because somebody else might be able to step up where someone doesn't. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that other thing about the credibility factor, one of the, one of the pieces of research that, that really inspired a lot of that was Doug Stone and Sheila Heen from Harvard wrote a book called Thanks for the Feedback. Mm. And they talked about feedback triggers. Um, and you know, you always wonder why people get upset when you give them feedback. And I'm certainly not great at taking feedback all the time. Uh, so I'm one of those people too. But they were they talked about feedback triggers. And there's there's the truth trigger, which is it goes off when you find that the feedback you're getting is unhelpful or untrue. And then there's the identity trigger, which is the, you, you get upset because the feedback you're getting doesn't align with the vision you have of yourself, the identity that you set up for yourself. The third one is the relationship trigger. And the relationship trigger goes off, not that the, the, re, the feedback is wrong, 
but it's because of the fact that the person giving you the feedback, you don't feel has credibility to give you that feedback. Mm-hmm. So that really, that relationship trigger and the feedback, as soon as I read that, I started thinking about learning walks, formal observations, informal observations. And if I'm a principal and I don't, and I'm not seen as a credible source, then what happens to that feedback? It could fall right. flat and not have right. any impact whatsoever. So yeah, those are, those are all the pieces, not to complicate it, but, and that's why I wanted to hone in on. So let's talk about what we as school principals can, can, um, can sort of admit that we can do like what can we what can we commit to doing when we're going into classroom what can we commit to looking for what can we commit to talking about and that's where the factual procedural metacognitive and conceptual yeah. the, the reason that focus on learning really resonated with me is because we see parallel research uh, around assessment and feedback in that mm-hmm. a lot of the research you know when i go around and i say to people you got to focus on learning they're like thanks tom but the point is that when you, there are times where you can give feedback that improves the quality of a task, yeah. but because it's so task specific, the feedback's not transferable and therefore you don't impact the long-term learning, right? So in our work in feedback, we're often saying, you know, focus on the learning, give mm-hmm. the feedback to the learning because that's transferable. You might change the task. For example, you could have students engage in a debate. You could right. then have them write an argumentative paper. Those are two different ways of formulating an argument, but they are still about argument. So if my feedback is focused on improving your debate skills, that won't be transferable. Whereas if I focus on your formulating of an argument, it is. So it really hit, resonated with me because I think there is a lot to say about, it sounds very superficial and flippant to say focus on learning. But yeah. I think if we scratch beneath the surface, we realize we can get very distracted from from learning and start to to get focused on tasks and 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 all the other things that sort of run around the periphery of what truly matters in schools. So you highlight um, in the book, you highlight teacher clarity, uh, classroom discussions, and metacognition. You talked a little bit about that already as three high leverage uh, strategies or or approaches to learning. So why is it important for leaders to first? be aware of how important those strategies are and two, um, what does, what do these strategies actually lead to in terms of the most desirable outcome? Yeah. Um, so yes, really great questions, Tom. Uh, so <laughs> I try, I try. So I will say that, uh, this became even more important after the pandemic, um, when everything went to pandemic teaching, learning, then, you know, remote teaching, learning. Teacher clarity has been around since the 70s. Like the 70s to me were a really cool time. Um, yeah. And not just because I was born in 1970. <laughs> but, you know, you've got Edmonds talking about instructional leadership back in the 70s. You've got Odetola's research on student engagement from 1972. And then you've got Cruikshank uh, talking about teacher clarity in the 1970s. And the thing that I think is really important is, like I did surveys of students during the pandemic. Um, from it was from last summer and students were talking a lot about this like how teachers were talking at them they didn't get the opportunity to necessarily like go into cooperative learning and we know that there's research around teacher talk versus student talk as well and so this whole idea for me was really to start looking at the fact that um teacher clarity is something that's really important and it can be it can really be cut down to you know 10 minutes Mm-hmm. And then students go into that cooperative learning piece where they're learning together, which we know is beneficial, especially for struggling learners, because they, 
they enjoy hearing the same kind of learning from their peers who are going to use it in a language they understand. But the teacher clarity piece there was just really important because especially during remote times, when I go in to do remote learning walks, I'm looking for the teacher clarity piece because if you've got students who are sitting on the other side of the screen and they've got who knows what's going on within their, their, their home, teacher clarity is really more important than ever because mm-hmm. in those moments that you have students that are online, you're gonna maximize that time. Teacher clarity is that piece that's going to lead to not only deeper learning, but we also, it's going to lead to student engagement. Because if we have teacher clarity and we do it for 25 minutes, we've lost the students. But if we can find that sweet spot and maybe you know talk for 10 minutes about it and then students engage in the learning, we know that's gonna increase student engagement. We know it's going to probably lead to deeper learning. So that's why teacher clarity is so important. And, and I, I know that I got criticized early on, I think it was before the book got published because somebody said, you know, why are you separating knowledge, the, the focus on learning, student engagement, and instructional strategies? And my answer was pretty simple. Um, student engagement, Odatola's research shows that students are alienated because they don't feel like they have an emotional connection to their school or teacher, which we totally saw when the pandemic hit. And the second reason is they don't feel like they have a voice in their own learning, which is another thing we saw. So when we're looking at things like knowledge dimensions, you know, through a focus for learning, then instructional strategies. The reason why I separated them is because we need to be able to look at student engagement from a social, emotional, and an academic level. Then we need to look at instructional strategies that are actually going to engage them instead of housing them under one big umbrella of student learning. Look, I mean, that 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 focus is so critical that we become clear uh, as so that we can recognize as leaders, we can recognize what's happening in classrooms and how we can really help engineer those opportunities for teachers to engage in that that the conversation, which really does lead to a kind of efficacy, doesn't it? It, it leads yeah. to a collective efficacy that so talk a little bit about that in terms of how does our focus on instructional leadership and the work that we do in engineering these opportunities in schools, how does that sort of create that collective efficacy amongst uh, amongst the staff? Yeah, efficacy is a topic that I think I will always write and pursue about because I am a um, you know, I, I mean, I've seen efficacy before, but it was once again, you know, Hattie, I, I, I give a lot of respect to and also a lot of thanks um, over the years because of his mentorship. But mm-hmm. that whole idea of self-efficacy, the research behind it to me was powerful because when I was working with instructional coaches, and I still do, but early on when I was working with instructional coaches through June night, one of the things that happened is instructional coaches would say, how are you working? How are you supposed to work with resistant teachers? And my thought was maybe we need to stop looking at them as resistant and maybe we need to start looking at the confidence level. And so self-efficacy is basically the confidence we have in our own actions. And it's also the competence behind it, but it's the confidence we have in our own actions. And what Shannon Moran and Greece's um, research out of the College of William and Mary showed is that it's context specific. So I might be very confident when it comes to using instructional strategies, but not confident at all when it comes to um, building student-teacher relationship. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I started looking after that is this whole idea of leadership self-efficacy, which Ben Durlich did the godfather of efficacy, looked at in 2000. And what Ben Durlich found is that 
Leaders who felt confident were going to double their efforts, and when they didn't feel confident, they were going to slacken their efforts. I did my doctoral research on how well school administrators safeguard LGBTQ students. And what I found in New York State is that a lot of leaders could not get away from that as fast. They couldn't get away from it faster. And why? I think a lot of it, and some of it was just the fact that they didn't believe in it, but some of it was that they didn't feel confident to take the topic on. We can separate LGBTQ and look at race and equity and everything else. What that leads to is building collective teacher efficacy or collective efficacy. And John, uh, Jenny Donahue, who is another confident and great friend, she, the three of us just wrote an article um, for Ontario. And it was on the fact that, um, that collective efficacy is this conviction that we can work together and impact student achievement in a positive way. And that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to when we look at our PLCs, when we get together with our team, um, do we have the confidence in each other that we have the conviction that we can we can actually have an impact on student learning? And do we go through an inquiry cycle in order to actually figure out what that current reality is, where we want to improve, and what strategies are going to work best? And one of the topics that I sort of talked about, I dropped in the book on instructional leadership is that of collective leader efficacy. And that is a topic that I actually just finished writing. I'm going to have a book. I have a book coming out on that in the fall. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's a little bit different is that collective teacher efficacy is how a group of teachers come together. Right. But when you've got collective leader efficacy, which people like Ken Leithwood out of Ontario have, has researched quite a bit, when you've got collective leader efficacy, what that means is that you've got a school leadership team where there's a principal and assistant principal. And if we know anything, principals and assistant principals come with a level of status yeah. and teachers don't feel as comfortable speaking up. So what we also have to look at, besides the fact that collective efficacy is that conviction, what I looked at are the preconditions and I created preconditions that are necessary for the team to come together. And it all leads to what you were saying, because it's around things like communication, understanding social sensitivity, understanding well-being, understanding that we work in a school that's actually going to value our opinion. Those are the collective efficacy is really easy to talk about, but it's a lot harder to do because we really need to break that down to its finer parts and get the understanding of do people actually believe they're working in a school district that really values the innovation that they're trying to do. Right. And, and that's where collective efficacy comes in. Right. I Look, uh, Peter, I, I think we could go on and on. I just really, really resonate with the content for sure. So, so let's think about it this way. There's listeners out there, leaders out there right now thinking to themselves, uh, look, Peter, I get it. I'm in, theoretically. Yeah. Uh, I'm ready to roll. But here's what you don't understand, Peter. I'm buried every day in all of the managerial duties that come with being a principal in this, in my school, in my district, you just don't understand how I'm caught in the middle with the mandates from, from the state and from district office, uh, trying to support all the managerial issues at the school level. So what advice do you have for, for leaders who have this authentic desire to become instructional leaders, but either, either are feeling overwhelmed right now with all the managerial duties or they, or they just don't know where to start, or maybe it's a little bit of both. But, but what advice do you have for leaders who are saying, I'd love to be an instructional leader, but I just feel completely overwhelmed right now? Yeah. Oh, and it's, a, it's very real. I mean, I coach leaders, but I was, you know, it, and I talk about this in the book. I mean, as a, as a school principal myself, I dealt with accountability. I dealt with school consolidation, budget cuts, all that stuff. And one of the things that I had to look at is where are the places that I can practice instructional leadership? So 
number one, it was gone, you know, between the first bell and the second bell, I was able to go around every morning to say good morning to the kids, but that's not instructional leadership, that's building relationship. Then it was what I found is that I had about an hour in the morning between parent phone calls and all that stuff in between when lunches started that I could actually go into classrooms and just commit to that. Do you have a half an hour? Do you have an hour that you can go into classrooms? No, you're not going to make it into the whole school, but maybe on, you know, one day you can make it into one grade level or one content area or whatever. Other days, you might have that brilliant day where everything comes together, the sun is shining, and you're able to go into all the, all the grade levels. But commit to an hour. Commit to, like, I can do this. Yeah. Commit to the fact that we can look at, okay, we have management to do, but we know at our faculty meetings, most of what we talk about could be sent in an email. Right. And I'm tired of hearing people say, well, people don't read their emails. We've had email for 25 years. It's time for people to read their email. So keep it short. But put some of these bulleted things in the email, send it out to them. Take 15 minutes to talk about management. Take 45 to talk about learning. Right. Um, school leadership team, take some time to focus on learning there. Have conversations with teachers. Like the conversations you have with teachers in the hallway um, about learning. Send out articles that you find really interesting that you read in educational leadership or education yeah. week or you know, Tom's got his new book and you find it to be brilliant <laughs> and you want to, you know, you want to send out something you learn from Tom. Like it, it's the small stuff that can lead to the bigger thing. It doesn't, I, I worry that sometimes people walk in and I have specifically said this, like people will walk into a situation and they'll be like, I have to practice instructional leadership 24 seven. No, yeah. no, no, you don't. No. Give yourself an hour and then start thinking about the different places that you have conversations and think about the places where you can be proactive. In fact, one really quick one is I know we're going to be wrapping up soon. I had two union reps and they used to come to me quite often to stop me in the hallway and say, Peter, we have an issue we've got to take care of in the, in the school. And then I would find that their idea of a big issue wasn't necessarily the big issue I was thinking it was. And I remember it was only like it was a few months into my leadership that I just said, you know, it seems like we have a lot to talk about. Would you be comfortable meeting with me every Friday morning from uh, eight to nine o'clock because our kids didn't come in until 9.05? And they said, yeah, we can do that. The next time they stopped me in the hallway, I said, is this a crisis or is this something that can wait until Friday? Most times it could wait until Friday. And the reason why I did that is every time I got stopped in the hallway, there was an opportunity cost, meaning I was they're talking, but I didn't get the opportunity to go into the classroom. So for those people who are looking at the management piece, look at the way you spend your time. Can you proactively say, I know we have to talk as a union. So can we do that on Friday mornings? And that's going to free up our time to be able to get into classrooms. It's doing those kind of things that will help you go from reactive being proactive. That could be helpful. I love that expression, opportunity cost. And I think so much of it is just about building routines, right? And trying to, I know that when I fat figured that out early in, in my career in administration, just figuring out to create routine predictability around when I'm going to visit classrooms. And it doesn't always have to be the same time every day, but it's trying to make sure that I have an hour each day or something like that. I think that's, that's really valuable. I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk 
um, first to teachers, and then I want to finish up by talking about assistant principals, which is that sort of weird role that we have in, in schools. But I want to first talk to uh, so listeners out there who are teachers, and and they're maybe thinking about you know I think my career path is leading to an assistant principalship or that you know I want to I want to go down that road. So a lot of teachers aspire to get into administration, and they have thoughts that as they leave the classroom, they're going to be those instructional leaders. So from your perspective, is it enough for them to simply focus on what they're doing now, become an exceptional teacher? Is that enough? Or are there any other things that teachers should be thinking about as they have a, you sort of have one eye on moving uh, into administration? Yeah, I mean, I think my thing is always to I, and maybe it's, you know, I've been practicing, I've been a consistent practice. Uh, I've had a consistent meditation practice over the past three years. For me, it's about the here and now. What are you doing right now presently that's going to be deeply impactful? And what are some of those things that you're doing that you know you can bring into a leadership position? Like it's always important to, if you want to go into leadership, yeah, keep your eye a little bit on, you know, who are the people that you admire? What are the practices that maybe your principal is doing that you would never do? And what are the practices that the principal is doing that you would totally do? Um, I mean, I would say that most of what you should be doing is, is just full on practicing, you know, being as impactful with the kids as possible. But when you start to look at, like, if you really want a desire to go into leadership, Know that it's not always every day. Like I remember I had a couple of teachers say, it must be nice to be a principal. You can wake up every morning, know that you can control your whole day. And I'm like, I don't know where you think I'm working, but that's just not, that's just not happening. Um, (laughs) uh, So, so it's really about just understanding that it, that when you get into school leadership, it is not always going to be about instructional leadership. There are going to be times that you've got to do things that you really don't like to do. I did not like every part of being a building principal, but I loved most parts. And it was eight of the be- eight of the best years of my life that I was doing it. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, yeah, from a from a teacher standpoint, focus on what you're doing right now, but also look at those practices that you think are going to be beneficial in the first place. And then maybe if you're interested in leadership, start taking on some leadership roles. You know, are you a PLC lead? Are you a department head? Are you on the school leadership team? Um, and start practicing there, uh, because I think that that could be really helpful to get an understanding of what it's like to try to work with a group, because you can be very myopic, too, when you're in a, in a classroom. You can think every classroom is like your classroom, and then you find out that working with a group is maybe a little bit different than you had first considered. That is... Uh... I think one of the biggest eye openers for me when I look back is moving from teacher to assistant principal and in the same school and suddenly seeing behind the curtain and realizing that uh, things happen very differently around the school and you have to adjust because you have a mindset that everyone sort of thinks that the way you do. And I know that sounds a little arrogant, but I don't mean it from an arrogant perspective. No, just no, sort no, of, no. We, have, we have that tunnel vision, right? We just, this is the way it's done and you move into that role. So speaking of the assistant principal, which is, I, I find, you know, myself fascinated with that role because it, 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 assistant principals are often in a funny position, right? They, 
Sometimes they're the buffer between the principal and the faculty. Um, you know, sometimes they're more instructionally knowledgeable because they have more recent classroom experience. Sometimes that's that's true. Um, you know, sometimes their principal is not willing or able to be that instructional leader. So I'm wondering about advice for assistant principals now specifically. How can assistant principals in essence, how can they be instructional leaders without inadvertently outshining their principal or out or sort of, mm -hmm. you know, turning the spot, like giving the appearance that they're not being loyal or they're trying to inadvertently undermine? Like how how does an assistant principal find that balance between if they are truly that instructionally, uh, you know, relevant leader in this moment? How how do they find that balance with with where the principal is at? Yeah, tread carefully. Um, yeah. <laughs> So Absolutely. this was probably one of my base areas of weakness because I was never an assistant principal and I never had an assistant principal. I went directly from teaching the high poverty school to being a principal in a rural suburban. And it wasn't until um, like five years ago when I was running a workshop on collaborative leadership and it was all assistant principals and it was through the University of Oklahoma. So it was a cohort that I was going to be working with. I was talking about instructional leadership and they did daily, they did feedback every day that it was there. And their feedback was like, that's great stuff, but we can't do it. So the next day that they came in, we did an activity. And what I was surprised to find is that the biggest barrier to them practicing instructional leadership was in fact, their school principal. And that kind of blew me away, I have to be honest. Um, and I've learned a lot. I think that there are a few things. I think number one, it's you have to understand as an assistant principal, what are your true parameters? Um, because sometimes we have policies in our own head. Sometimes we think there's a rule that really isn't a rule. So figuring out what are your parameters, what grade levels or content areas are you really responsible for? And then how can you practice instructional leadership within those departments and grade levels? Mm -hmm. It's, um, I understand that you, the outshining piece, the highest weed has always been a problem we've had in education because when you start to stand too high, there are lots of people that would like to chop you down and that's unfortunate. Yeah. So my first course of action is to always talk with principals and meaning in my role that I have as a leadership coach and everything else is to talk to school principals about um, leveraging their assistant principals and allowing them to practice instructional leadership because there is a plethora of research that shows that assistant principals do a lot of discipline and patrol hallways and they don't get the opportunity to do that. Right. When you can figure out your own parameters and you're working within these grade levels, then you need to do the best job you can do. And if other people get upset with that, then that's, I'm sorry, this is gonna be very blunt, but that's their problem. Because if they're holding you back from being who you could truly be, that is a problem. And I think Tom, you and I have probably experienced that because I know I have. Yeah. When you realize that your, your you're purposely not growing because you're worried it's going to hurt somebody else's feelings for the wrong reasons, um, which is about them, not that you. That's a problem for me. I think yeah. you need to, you need to not only, you know, within those parameters that you've got, I think you you practice and you go as deep as you possibly can with the practices that will make you a much better instructional leader because mm -hmm. that concern is correct. If you don't practice instructional leadership as an assistant principal, then we're just cycling out these people that when they become principals, they're not used to practicing it either. 
and that's going to be a problem. So yeah, you know what? Sure. Sometimes you just have to outshine people and they're going to have to deal with it. You know, the best, and I'm sure you've encountered this as well as the flip side. I, I was very fortunate in, in my assistant principalships to have principals who just said, you go with that. That's, that's, that's your area of expertise or that's, you know, where, whether it was in instruction or it was grading or it was, and when they sort of hand the keys, you know, figuratively hand the keys to the car over to you and say, and then there's that loyalty that develops. There's also that appreciation for giving you the space to grow. Um, they are still the principal. And I think it's important that assistant principals understand that role, but still that's the best case scenario. And I've met so many principals over the last decade or so where they've just said, you know, I just, I want my assistant principal. This is their area of expertise. This is where I want them to thrive. And that's the best case scenario for any assistant principal who's, who's in that type of situation. Peter, I, I, I can yeah. talk to you about this stuff all day listeners. The book is instructional leadership by Peter DeWitt. You, you, just listen, if you're a leader or you're an aspiring leader, you need to read this book. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. But Peter, we're going to finish up today uh, with a few kind of fun questions okay. and, uh, and, and then a, a, maybe a little more serious question at the end. It's a segment called Three Questions. I'm going to ask you three lighthearted questions so listeners can get to know you a little bit on a more personal level and, okay. uh, and uh, just, some, just have some fun here as we, as we wrap up today. So first question uh, is kind of an either or choice question. Are you a breakfast guy or a dinner guy? Um, I am a, I am a dinner guy. Okay. I've been accused in the past of eating just to fill my stomach, not eating because I truly like, so over the, <laughs> over the years, uh, you know, my partner is a great cook. So um, I am a dinner guy because he's gotten me to, to experience food and enjoy it. So yeah, I, I guess I would say dinner guy. Yeah. Dinner seems to have more, uh, available, right? There seems yeah, to be more yeah, different exactly. kinds of flavors than uh, there's only so many ways you can cook eggs, right? At some point, <laughs> that's it's, right, it's, that's enough, right. it's enough already. All right, here's another one, uh, a choice for you. Uh, which would you choose? <clears throat> always having to tell the truth, the, the stone cold truth, or always having to lie? Oh, always having to tell the truth. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's ruthless? Um, well, that's the thing, right? It's about making sure that you're not doing it in a ruthless way. I cannot, I actually, I have no poker face whatsoever. I am yeah. the, I can't lie. I just, I really, I just can't. Yeah. It even, yeah, yeah. I even start to get flustered when I even think about it, but no, I, I would much rather always tell the truth. It's just finding the way to do it in a, polite way is yeah. what I practice. Yeah, that would, that would be hard. I, I don't know if that would be part of the mandates. Like, hey, what do you think of my <laughs> shoes? Oh, those are terrible. <laughs> what do you think of my story? Nope, didn't yeah. work for me. You know, I mean, I don't know which one would, would make you more enemies at some point when you're telling that stone cold truth to people. It'd be like, all right, I'm never asking Peter again. Yeah, uh, I think it's about <laughs> making sure that you can say things like, you know, maybe you don't like the shoes, but you can say they're perfect for your feet. <laughs> there wasn't anything in my question about being gentle, Peter. It was just about that laser-like focus. Okay, last one. Um, and I'm going to put a, an asterisk to this by saying you can't choose anyone in your family and you can't choose anyone in education. Okay, okay. so that's the, the caveat. Okay. The question is, who inspires you? Who outside of your family, outside of education inspires you? Jeez, <laughs> who inspired? Wow, you just you, you really just uh, 
who outside of education and outside my family inspires me. Um, Celebrity, athlete, musician, anyone. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. Um, so this is going to, okay, that's, that's really good. I'm glad you, you, you said that. So this is going to sound probably pretty corny, but um, so I am a big fan of a, a musician named Ludovico Anotti. And mm -hmm. I listen to his music all the time, especially when I'm writing. Um, or when I was flying somewhere, because sometimes I have anxiety and uh, his music always calmed me down. And what I like is that um, from the podcasts I've heard of him and the way he approaches music, he's not concerned about everybody else. He's concerned about just making the best music he's making and being creative. And I find mm -hmm. that very inspiring that because, you know, sometimes you get caught up in how are the words going to come out and what part of the group am I going to be in and, mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I find it very inspiring to sit there and say, it's okay sometimes to just stand on your own and find your own creative self and do it this way. And okay. uh, I appreciate that. Interesting. Yeah. Say the name again. Who, who is the musician? So his name is Ludovico Anadi. Yeah. Oh. He's uh, pretty fantastic. So. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll have to check that out as well. So I have one final question for you, Peter. It's a, a theme I run through the podcast. I've asked everyone I've interviewed the same question. Uh, and we're trying to, I'm trying to have a sort of overarching theme of success and happiness. And, and so the final question I have for you is if a random person stopped you on the street and just asked you, you know, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Um, my definition of success would be the connections that I have made and the family that I'm surrounded with. Um, and it's become, you know, it's COVID has not had a lot of positives. And unfortunately, because of the, you know, so many deaths and everything, um, including within um, our own family. But one of the positives that have come out of COVID is the connection, maybe the reconnections we've made with home um, and the understanding of what is truly, really special. So I would say the connections I've made with people and then my family, um, yeah. that would be the, the greatest line of success for me in the future. Yeah. Uh, Peter, let me first say, I'm sorry to hear of your loss. And, oh. uh, and certainly, um, I think we've all found out those connections and how important they are to us through almost deprivation. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and not being able to see people, we've 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 found the importance of those connections and a family and and all of that. So, yeah. um, really, I think that's a, a great way to wrap up today uh, for for us. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks uh, for having me. Yes, listeners, you can follow Peter on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Peter M. DeWitt. Uh, pretty easy to find on Twitter. Uh, same for the website, uh, www.petermdewitt.com. And one more thing, listeners, um, and, and Peter, I want you to jump in here and, and tell listeners about, just very quickly, about the, the course you've created around the book, Instructional Leadership, and most importantly, how listeners can access uh, getting into that course and taking a deeper dive into this content. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I created through a platform called Thinkific, and it is an as mostly asynchronous course, but I'm accepting cohorts. So we're, we have cohort one right now. It's over eight weeks. And it's mostly asynchronous, but we have, um, right now it's Mondays, we have optional Zoom meetings, we have discussion boards, all this stuff. We're, we're working through each chapter. They've got, a, they've got basically a smart goal um, and things they have to do to be better in their practice. 
And then we discuss it through the discussion boards. We discuss it through our optional Zooms. And um, I will be offering it again, probably early summer. And they can find out more information about the whole thing. If they just go to my website, there's something okay. on there as well. So thank you for mentioning it. Fantastic. Great. Peter, it was uh, great, great to see you today. And uh, I look forward to next time. All right, Tom. Thank you so much. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to keep with this theme of leadership and talk about the process for leading change in assessment and grading. Years ago, I read an article by Harvard business professor John Cotter called Leading Change, Why Transformation Efforts Fail. It was first published in March of 1995, but I read it a number of years later. And the article essentially talked about what's necessary to transform an organization and why so many change efforts fail. So let me begin with a couple of quotes from early on in the article. Cotter writes, the most general lesson to be learned from the more successful cases is that the change process goes through a series of phases that, in total, usually require a considerable length of time. Skipping steps creates only the illusion of speed and never produces a satisfying result, end quote. He also said, very early on in the article, that a, quote, a second very general lesson that is critical is that critical mistakes in any of the phases can have a devastating impact, slowing momentum, and negating any hard-won gains. He says, perhaps because we have relatively little experience in renewing organizations, even very capable people often at least make one big error. End quote. So Cotter's focus was and is on the business world. So when I read the article, I started to draw many parallels to our work in education, but I also identified some differences that we have to attend to that maybe in business you don't, private sector. The article is framed around eight errors that organizations make, and therefore Cotter ends up presenting the eight steps for transforming an organization. So what I did with the article was I took those eight steps, and, and I've done this ever since, and adapted them for the process of transforming assessment and grading cultures in schools and districts. So my plan here is to present the eight steps for transforming your assessment and grading culture by going through Cotter's eight steps and then talk about my adaptations of those steps for the school environment. And we're going to do this in two parts because I want to make sure that we don't skip. So steps one through four we'll do this week. Steps five through eight we'll do next week because doing all eight steps would take far too much time. Even three minutes a step would put us at 24 minutes uh, and it probably would take longer. So we're going to split this up. So one, to give us more time to talk about each of the phases and two, um, it'll be a nice teaser to ensure that you come back next week. All right. All kidding aside, in seriousness, let's begin. Step one, Cotter says, in order to transform your organization, you need to establish a sense of urgency. So here's what Cotter says. This first step is essential because just getting a transformation program started requires the aggressive cooperation of many individuals. Without motivation, people won't help and the effort goes nowhere. Okay, my adaptation for this is to establish urgency, but pair it with patience. Okay, we have to establish urgency. Any transformation away from traditional assessment and grading practices is long overdue. You know, the move to outcomes, standards, criterion referencing, that happened in the 90s. Okay, and it rendered so many of our traditional practices as obsolete. If we teach to standards, then grades should be reflective of the achievement of those very same standards. However, we need to pair that urgency with some patience. Mandates in education are just not that simple. 
In the private sector, you know, executive teams can almost just say, hey, here's what we're doing and it needs to get done. And if you don't like it, find another place to work. In education, there is a slightly different relationship between management and teachers, right? Between principals and teachers or between district staff and, and teachers. It's just not that simple. You, you can't just say, well, you don't like it too bad for you. And that, and that isn't really the kind of working relationship we want to create anyway, right? And, and, and corporations don't really want to do that either. I mean, we have this, you know, the idea of corporations having zero affect with regard to their employees is just a caricature that, you know, sure exists in some places, but I don't think it's as widespread as some might have you believe. So we have to make the case for change. And I'm convinced we have to make both an intellectual case and an emotional case. Uh, it changes, as you know, changes much more emotional than clinical. Uh, but I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So just set that aside for a moment. But that's the kind of case we want to make. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will have heard me say several times in past episodes, urgency for ideas, patience with people. The other thing I've said more than once is that I would gauge the urgency patients divide by the size of the group. The larger the group, the more urgent the message. The smaller the group, the more patient the message, balancing it, right? Urgency for ideas, patience with people. In other words, start with your why, but make sure your why is not just a clinical or a technical argument. Make sure you attend to the emotional side as well. Okay, step two, form a guiding coalition. So here's what Cotter writes in the article. Companies that fail in phase two usually underestimate the difficulties of producing change and thus the importance of a powerful guiding coalition. Sometimes they have no history of teamwork at the top and therefore undervalue the importance of this type of coalition. He goes on to say that efforts that don't have a powerful enough guiding coalition can make apparent progress for a while but sooner or later, the opposition gathers itself and stops the change. So let's talk about this guiding coalition. Be strategic about this. Ask yourself, who are the people within our context who have enough power, influence, credibility to lead the transformation in assessment and grading practices? Try not to leave it to chance. You know, from my perspective, we can ask for volunteers but go tap a few people on the shoulder and ask for their participation or at least their input. You know, you want to try to have those with a little street cred, if you will. You want to have them on your team or your guiding coalition so that when they give sponsorship to an idea or a vision, and we'll again have more on that in a moment, when they give sponsorship to an idea, there is an embedded influence. You may already have a guiding coalition or a leadership team structure in your school, and that's great. Take advantage of that. This guiding coalition can do a lot of the heavy lifting, especially early on when you're in the exploration phase of the change effort. We know we need to change, but we don't know exactly what direction we're going to go or what to do. So this guiding coalition can be a team that leads the effort so it's not just a top-down initiative. Okay, The best team, from my perspective, is one that is a microcosm of your staff and your faculty, right? So age, experience, gender, subjects, etc. Try to have a team that kind of is a representative group of the staff. Step three, create a vision. So here's what Cotter writes. A vision always goes beyond the numbers that are typically found in five-year plans. A vision says something that helps clarify the direction in which an organization needs to move. And he goes on to say that a useful rule of thumb is this. If you can't communicate the vision to someone in five minutes or less, 
and you can't get a reaction that signifies both their understanding and their interest, you're not yet done with this phase of the transformation process. Okay, so I mentioned this a little bit earlier. To me, the most effective visions, I think, make both the technical and the emotional case for change. Now, in chapter two of my book, Grading from the Inside Out, I talk about what I call a grading true north, that grades need to be both accurate and they need to build confidence. So there's an example of a technical and an emotional argument. So on the one hand, you have accuracy. Uh, So many of our traditional assessment and grading practices, however philosophically defended, have unequivocally led to inaccurate reporting of student learning. Percentages, inconsistencies amongst teachers in terms of interpreting evidence, etc., and so on, have all led to a level of inaccuracy or inconsistency in reporting. So that's the argument on the one side that says we need to make sure that in whatever manner we are reporting, that we ensure that those grades are accurate. Now, on the flip side, the confidence speaks to the idea that so many of those same traditional practices have left our students feeling less hopeful, less optimistic, and less confident about their eventual success. To maintain the use of practices uh, that emotionally undercut our students' confidence and efficacy is unconscionable. Now, once you have that vision in place, you can now begin to I guess, establish a kind of mantra. So that vision can lead you to establishing a kind of perspective or mantra uh, with what you're doing. So when you're asked, you know, what is the vision of our assessment and grading reform? The answer could be accuracy and confidence, right? What's our vision? Accurate grades, confident learners. And that becomes a very clear way to communicate that. Now, To be clear, your vision doesn't have to utilize my content. I'm not saying that. I mean, it could, but you could also create your own, and that's fine. And the point is to have one, right? As Cotter says, you have to have one. And my two cents is to make sure that when you create that balance, when you're talking about transitioning or uh, transforming your assessment and grading practices, make sure you make both the technical and the emotional side of that argument. Does your vision make the case for both? Okay, step four, and this is what we're going to finish with today. Step four, communicate that vision. So once you have the vision, it's time to communicate. So here's what Cotter says. Without credible communication, and a lot of it, the hearts and minds of the troops are never captured, he says. He goes on to say that communication comes in both words and deeds, and the latter are often more powerful, right? So it's the deeds, the actions. Nothing undermines change more than behavior by important individuals that is inconsistent with their words, okay? So let's start with words. When I think about communicating the vision, I would use your vision as a way of communicating as much as possible and try to naturally fold it into the answers or the responses that you give to people when you're asked about it. So for example, let's say that you're leading a change in assessment and grading and parents start to ask you a question about reassessment. Okay, why now, Tom, do you allow students to reassess? So your answer might sound something like this. Well, listen, we know that some students need longer to learn. So we want to make sure that while they're in the midst of learning, they don't lose their sense of optimism or confidence about their eventual success. And also, that's going to ensure that you as a parent receive the most accurate information about your child's level of achievement. You know, not not a combination of what they used to know and what they know now, but we can give you an accurate picture of where they are in this moment, right? 
So there's an example of how you could fold your vision into the responses, right? Accuracy and confidence would always come up as a way to naturally talk about, um, you know, the, the transformation effort. I actually used to practice this, um, especially in the early days of change on my drive home. Now, admittedly, at the time I lived in a pretty small town and my commute was pretty short, uh, so maybe I'd get one or two in. But I literally on my drive home would think, okay, what would someone challenge us or me on when it came to assessment and grading practices? And I would start to rehearse my answers and I would rehearse them with that sort of lens of accuracy and confidence so it would kind of come through uh, the answer, and, and because it's just rare that anybody's going to demand inaccurate information. It's rare that anybody's going to push back and say, yes, no, you know what, I, I don't agree with you. I want you to undermine my child's sense of confidence or optimism. It just doesn't play out that way. Now, as far as action is concerned, right, because communication can be through words, but it can also be through action, the guiding coalition is the team that can start to begin living the vision, right? Their deeds, so to speak, will create the example for others to see what exactly the vision looks like. So they can start implementing a few of the aspects. And, and again, I know this is cliche, but it's the idea of think big, but start small. Start to implement some of the practices that really sort of en encompass what the vision is all about. So just as a review, step one, establish a sense of urgency that's what Cotter says. My suggestion is to pair that with patience, right? You got to look at your context, take a little bit of an inventory on where you are. Urgency for ideas, patience with people. The larger the group, the more urgent the message. Step two, form that guiding coalition, right? Allow that team to do some of the exploration and some of the heavy lifting and maybe some of the early adopting so they can be the example uh, that you want to set in, in the school. Three, create the vision. Right. Remember, your vision, from my perspective, should communicate both the technical and the emotional side of this change. And step four, communicate the vision through your words frequently, but also through your actions. Right. Get a few good things going really correctly or on point right away. Get off to a good start. So again, think big, but start small. Get good at a few things and you're really going to be in a much better position. Okay, we'll look at steps five through eight next week. Okay, a couple of announcements before we close out today. Uh, first, a reminder about the Achieve Institute, which is the Institute about Promising Practices and in Instruction Assessment and Grading. That event will be virtual this August 16th through 18th. The nice part, of course, about virtual events is that you can participate in the event literally from anywhere in the world. And that event, of course, features myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So if you're interested, head over to the solutiontree.com website for details. Um, and I've added a link uh, in the show notes for that event as well. Now, I mentioned in the opening about the summer. And one of the things I'm thinking about this summer, and I'm talking about the months of June, July, and August, I'm going to do two things that, with the podcast this summer. Uh, first, we're going to go to an every other week format. So we're looking at maybe seven or eight episodes over the summer. And two, rather than sticking with the usual format over the summer, I'm thinking of trying to create a kind of summer series, which will focus on special topics or specific topics that we talk about. So instead of the normal format, I'm going to bring together multiple educators for a conversation around some special topics that will essentially be the entire episode. And this is where you will come in. I'm going to create a process through which you will be able to uh, help me create the topics that you're interested in hearing more about for the summer sessions. Now, that 
process is not quite ready to go. So I mention it now only to get you thinking about potential special topics. So thinking about, do you want a, you know an episode about racial equity? Do you want an episode about women in leadership? Do you want an episode about UDL or standards-based grading or international education or something like that? I mean, there's so many topics we could explore. So right now, again, I just want you to start thinking about it. So in the next few weeks, I'll put out an actual formal call some sort of uh, Google survey or something. I'll, I'll do something to create the opportunity for you to share what your ideas would be and what you'd be interested in, right? In September, we'll kind of get back to the usual format, but I thought it might be fun to do something different for the summer that might not be so time sensitive. Uh, you need some downtime. Uh, I need some downtime. The weekly pace of the podcast may not be conducive to summer, so it might be easier to navigate in every other week format and have some special topics that we focus on. So that's the idea. Uh, stay tuned for an actual formal call for topics and things you as listeners would be interested uh, in having as part of the summer series. And I think this would be a, a nice way to sort of bridge the summer and then get back to our usual format in the fall. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well. That's at Tom Shimmer. Uh, Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions about the podcast, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. And again, as I always say, don't forget to check out the YouTube channel as well, uh, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Next week, my guest will be Matt Townsley. Matt is currently an assistant professor of educational leadership at the University of Northern Iowa, and he's done some excellent research on assessment and grading, so that'll be the focus of our conversation. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, and if you're up to it, please spread the word about the podcast too. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.